When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. About a year ago, for the very first episode of this show, I spoke with two moms who were running for election to their local school board. People who were new to activism but became part of a post-pandemic backlash against public schools. And at one point, one of them, Amy Covey from Lansing, Kansas, told me she was bothered by some of the books her kid was encountering at school. It was, this book is anti-racist, and it had clear CRT you know, ideals in that book. Yeah, I think this is the book by Tiffany Jewell, and the full title is uh, 20 Lessons on How to Wake Up, Take Action, and yeah. Do the Work. It's it's very much an activist book on how to teach your child, you know, to do that in different ways. And which part of it to you is the most objectionable? Well, it was a partisan book that the country is inherently racist and formed on racist ideals, and that if you're not anti-racist, that you're racist. I mean, it was a very strong book. What I want is to keep that out of the classroom. Now, conservative groups like Moms for Liberty, the 1776 Project, and others, well, they've made huge gains pouring money into school board races to back candidates like these guests. And the culture war issues they were focused on, nixing DEI programs, opposing trans rights, challenging books they found offensive, well, that spread to school districts nationwide. After that episode aired, a listener named Michelle Jarrett, who's part of an association of librarians in Florida, called in and left us this message. Everything that has been happening in Florida with our school boards and with our parental rights bills has directly affected what's happening in school libraries. And in many cases, in decreasing access to literature for students across the state. I'd love for you to dive into that. So today, for the anniversary of our show, we are revisiting the public school culture wars. What have we learned from the kids who fought against book bans? We really started the club to get students reading these books and getting their opinions out there and just making sure that people understand that students have an opinion in this fight, too. How has the war over books sparked a backlash to the so-called parents' rights movement? I've chosen to speak at school board meetings, you know, as a way to show our school board members that it's not okay what they're doing and they're being watched by our students. We talk to teens on this episode of The Assignment. I'm Audie Cornish. Who wants to go first? I can go ahead and go. Um, my name is Datavion Daniels. I am a high school... Datavion, let's stop. I've okay. actually heard you speak before, and you're not shy. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to hear the real Datavion introduction. All right. Let, Whatever okay. you're ready. Okay, let's see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take a sip. Do what you need to do. Okay. We're caffeinated. Okay. Hello, everyone. <laughs> My name is Datavion Daniels. I'm a high school junior in Fort Worth, Texas. According to the free speech nonprofit Pen America, Datavion Daniels lives in the state with the second highest number of banned books. I know what it feels like to come from an underrepresented background and try to lift myself up in a way and 
For me personally, books provide that. And when students don't have access to books, it just creates a whole another set of obstacles that they have to overcome. The state with the highest number of bans is Florida. My name is Eliza Lane. I am 17. I'm a senior at Palm Harbor University High School um, in Palm Harbor, Florida. Now we got them on a video call late after school because they're both activists challenging book bans. Detavion joined the National Coalition Against Censorship. And he spent a lot of time pushing back on a particular bill in Texas. It's known as HB 900. And it's a bill that regulates school libraries to prevent kids from getting access to material that is, quote, sexually explicit or pervasively vulgar or educationally unsuitable. And after the law passed, the Fort Worth School District shut down libraries for two weeks while it was reviewing some 120 books, including Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. During our conversation, Detavion has in his hand another book from that list. Yeah, I like to read a lot. And right now I'm just on milk and honey like every emotionally aware teenager in this country. We're all on this book right now. Wait, hold it up again. You have it in your hand. What's the book called? Milk and Honey. (laughs) And the author? Rupi Kaur. Mm, mm, mm. It melts the soul. Oh. It just discusses so many different topics from sexual assault to being taken advantage of to reclaiming, you know, usually viewed, like societally viewed submissive roles. It's just a masterpiece. And I would recommend that everyone pick it up. We're going to talk about this more in a minute (laughs) because I'm sure there's a parent who just heard your description of that book, (laughs) which includes sexual assault. uh, And they are horrified and they're scribbling down. Get this banned. (laughs) Oh, it's been banned. Eliza Lane was fighting for a book that is among the top challenge in the country last year. Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. Her AP Lit teacher promised that they would read it upon their return from a school vacation. But when they got back to class... All of a sudden, there's all these rumors flying about, like, we're not reading it anymore. It's something happened. Turns out a parent had read the book which describes, among other things, colorism, sexual abuse, and mental illness, and raised objections. She posted a video on the internet that was public that called public schools in Florida, and I quote, Marxist indoctrination camps. And she just basically talked about how reading the book caused her to have a trauma response, and that caused her to feel like it was inappropriate. So it's a parent who's saying, like, This is what I don't like about The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. This is why I don't think it should be taught in school. So you you have like a a very kind of fulsome explanation from someone. Yeah, um, it it definitely explained her perspective. And yeah, anyway, that that video circulated pretty fast um, through through the group chats. I asked Atavion and Eliza, who have read a lot of these banned books, what they think these titles have in common. It's a common trend that they're all written by either, well, majority are written by BIPOC authors or LGBTQIA authors, or they're sharing that narrative, or they're sharing something about that, or they're just sharing life experiences, honestly. Yeah, I I would definitely agree with that. I I won't do a full generalization there, but most of the people who are um, very active in the the movement to ban these books, to remove them from from our access— it's, very, it's a very different narrative than 
that which they are accustomed to, that which they have experienced. But they're all they're often challenging these books or asking them to be reviewed in a way on your behalf to protect your, let's say, innocence. Batavian, you're smiling. I, I think it's really, you know, unique that they that you phrased it that way, um, that they're trying to protect our innocence. There, it's just an irrational fear, honestly. It's a fear of allowing a child to grow, be able to empathize with another's, you know, situation. And it's a it's just a fear of, you know, what this world is. This whole call to protect innocence and virtue and everything about a child that's so sweet, this world is not sweet. It's not sweet for, you know, the people who experience sexual assault and write about that. It's not sweet for, you know, the people who experience gender and race inequity in this country and who share that and they want their readers to understand that. So the whole idea of protecting innocence, it's just outrageous to me. Yeah. Eliza, how do you feel about that? There's innocence. There's also, I've heard another argument is, especially when it comes to issues of race, um, politics, social awareness, that, you know, the other way they want to, quote unquote, protect children is also to protect people from like racial guilt or, you know, interacting with history in a way that is going to be really difficult. Yeah. um, I mean, I think that the whole idea of protecting children's innocence, again, to me, reveals a certain level of uh, lack of information. Because, like, in my case, the people who made the decision didn't know that students were allowed to skip those passages, skip those pages. Students were allowed to opt out of the book entirely and read an alternate assignment. Um, There there were clauses in place, uh, measures in place, so that students who felt uncomfortable or parents who felt uncomfortable with their students consuming this material um, were were not forced into this. I feel like that's a narrative that gets misconstrued a lot. Um, But the other aspect, I think, is that um, this idea of, like, protecting people from different perspectives, like, perspectives are not something that you should be protected from, especially in, like, an AP literature class where we are reading college-level material. It's because those students are expected to have you know, a certain degree of maturity and understanding for the things that are going on around them, a certain degree of political awareness, as Detavion was saying, that, that, like, these issues are real. And I don't think that protecting students from perspectives is a good way to make them well-rounded individuals. Does it feel silly? <laughs> um, like, does it just feel like a weird adult parent thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, it feels silly, but it's also sinister in a way, because these are things that are really happening and these are people who are really in charge so like it's easy to laugh when you first hear it but when you really think about it it becomes more disturbing i think so here's what eliza and her classmates did in pinellas county florida they studied the law held a protest and faced off with the school board We are now moving to public comment on general business of the district. Look around you. Look how many of us are here today. And think about how many of us are in their classes, doing their due diligence to their academics, but supporting us from afar. There is interest here. There is advocacy. Please listen to us. Please reevaluate. At the time, the district superintendent, Kevin Hendrick, defended the fast move to pull the book. This is why we made the decision that we made to err on the side of caution. I encourage the public, as they have these conversations, to remember that the district must follow the law. 
remembering that the legislator makes the laws, not the board or its employees. But the student protest and the media attention forced the district to take a proper look. A group of library specialists reviewed the novel and decided to bring it back to classrooms on the condition, per state law, that parents gave permission for their kids to read it and that alternatives would be available if they didn't. Um, I do have one question um, for Eliza, actually. So what was that biggest, you know, challenge and that biggest factor that, you know, you had to expose to keep people coming and keep them, you know, engaged in your fight? I think one of the most challenging aspects, and, and maybe you've experienced this in Texas as well, is kind of this fear aspect that's been brought into classrooms um, since the Stop Woke Act was um, invoked and since the Florida legislature started kind of outlawing certain topics of discussion in schools because when we were trying to like like organize our on-campus protest, we had teachers who would not permit discussion of that protest in their classrooms because they were afraid they were going to get fired if someone found out. So I think one of the, the biggest things to overcome was just the the fear element that's been brought in from from legislative action recently. Have you experienced that in Texas? Yeah, that that hit close to home because with you know the policies that districts and everything and that these you know big governing bodies put in place, it really scares the teachers and you know the community and the educators who are actually dealing with students who have these opinions. Do you have a sense that in either of your communities this is driven by like regular people, regular parents, um, driven or driven by politicians and the government. Like, how do you see it? So I personally view this as a very much concerted effort by a very small group of small-minded people. Um, and, you know, rather it be to get control of a school board or control the narrative of what young people are reading and consuming in education spaces and spheres or, you know, gaining traction for their favorite political candidate. Yeah, I mean, I think in my perspective, um, there's definitely, obviously, this is the the push to ban books is being driven by conservatives. But um, to, to the broader point, I think there are also people who genuinely believe that they're doing the right thing. And I think that when you consider that, not not that you have to agree with that by any means, but... I think in to some degree this has to inform our approach to how we combat this because convincing the other side that what they are doing is evil and blatantly wrong while we may feel that is not going to be an effective way of countering what's going on. Is that something you've learned from your own work or is like is that one of your takeaway lessons? Yeah, I actually am quite good friends with the student whose mom initiated the ban, and I have several other friends who have very different um, political and, you know, religious beliefs than mine. And one of the most beautiful things about what we were able to accomplish um, in kind of restoring the bluest eye and whatnot was forming connections and understandings with people who had very different um, beliefs and viewpoints on on what was going on. And I think that those conversations are how we get from where we are in America right now, which is incredibly divided and 
you know, just kind of a mess, for lack of better term, to really making progress is when we stop and listen. I hear you both talking about um, the people doing these bans as having very different political beliefs from you, kind of being on the other side of the the political spectrum. Um do you have any frustration with your own side of the political spectrum? Meaning, do you ever... Oh, I hear laughing. Um, Me- meaning, or do you ever feel like, where the heck are my fighting parents? Like, what's... Why am I out here doing this? Am I making that up? I'm, um, I don't no, know. No, 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 you're, you're, you're on Right track. on point, right on point. I will say that it's not only where are my parents, it's where are my representatives? It's where are my congressmen, congresswomen, <laughs> congresspeople? Where are my elected officials at? Because something that we see oftentimes is, especially in the Democratic Party here in Texas, um, you know, with like the... Texas State House and the Texas Senate, the people who are often, you know, standing up for this, it's a small amount of Democrats. Um, and, you know, they're the entirety of the Republican Party is usually, they have a consensus about what they want to do and what they want to get passed. Eliza, for you, you also were expressing frustration. Is it that you want to see a groundswell? Is it that you're annoyed that there's not a competing movement? Like, you guys were so enthusiastic when I started to say that. Like, what, yeah. is this something kids talk about? I don't know. Yeah, I think the I think the other aspect is, I feel like a lot of people, and um, Datavian, if you can speak to this too, then uh, feel, go ahead. But I feel like a lot of people have a very defeatist attitude towards politics right now. Um because everything is so divided and because there's a lot of extremism going on that people are kind of just like, I give up. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the things that you hear as uh, young people organizing protests is, you know, that's never going to work. You guys are wasting your time. Go ahead, stand outside this building. You're like, nothing's going to happen. And I think one of the most powerful things that I took out of um, kind of my experience was that like, you can try a hundred times and you can fail 99, but if that one time you're successful, the world is is better for it. And we, because we were able to be successful, I think um, I, I took a lot out of that as kind of this kind of defeatist attitude that prevents people from getting involved because they claim to no longer care is really impeding our ability to make progress as a society, if I can yeah. speak in such general terms. But just, so you're not just talking about kids. And Tavian Cheap, Eliza said for you to weigh on this as well, so I don't want to jump in on you. But um, it, it, I hear you guys saying, like, why are we not alone in this? But why aren't there more of us, so to speak? I honestly have to 100 wholeheartedly agree with what Eliza just said. The defeatist mindset. This country, in our tr- overall trajectory, people are so divided simply because elected officials can't get their stuff together to, you know, to unite and show that even though we have different, our parties have different foundational beliefs, we can look past that for bipartisan work in advancing our country and our nation and our people. After the break, are these kids outliers or is a counter-movement afoot? I talk with my colleague CNN's Ellie Reeve about that when we come back.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Welcome back. So we were talking to high school students to Tavian Daniels in Texas and Eliza Lane in Florida. And I asked them what message they had for the adults in their lives who think like they do. Oh, I would be surprised if an adult thought like me. Um, I'm mostly thinking about books and coffee. But for the adults who have the same mindset as me, use your vote as your voice. And, and you know, Put your vote where your mouth is, essentially. Tell young people they matter by voting into office people who will actually, you know, make meaningful change and protect young people and tell young people that their voices are heard and valued. And, you know, you can donate to some of these, you know, youth organizations who are actually driving this change. Or you can, you know, just do something. Be active. If if you're not sitting one way or another in the situation, I'm just going to say it, you're automatically wrong. Um, And I feel like people are put in this position due to a lack of awareness around any activism situation, whether it be book bans, gender equity in schools, bathroom policy, so many different things. Mm. There are many adults who are part of the conversation about what does and doesn't get taught in schools, right? We've talked about them. School board members, parents, politicians, community members, librarians, and teachers. Um, What would you want to say to them? Meaning, what would you want them to think about the next time they hear of a book that's being challenged? I I want them to talk to us about it. Thank you. Yes. Talk to us. We're the ones reading it. it. We're the ones consuming the material. Like, you said something earlier that was like, you know, are are you and Detavion outliers? And I think that thinking of us as outliers is... Part of the problem. Say it. Part of the problem. It's part of the problem. Yeah. Yes. That, that statement conveys to a certain extent that um, it is rare for um, minors, for kids, basically, to be articulate, to take a stand, to advocate for what they believe in. And I feel like we kind of have to get rid of that mentality because it's not rare for us to be able to have that perspective. It's not rare for us to be able to articulate it in a way that, at least in my opinion, is worth listening to. What do you think of them? I like them. I mean, I agree. I think the kids are smart. I've been pro-kids for a long time. CNN correspondent Ellie Reeve has covered book bans, but she's not on the education beat or even politics. 
initially I mostly covered extremism, violent extremism, but over the last few years, what I've been tracking is how elements of extremism are percolating into normal life and the ideas that regular people have, upstanding people with jobs, not like neo-Nazi skinheads. That's why you're on the show today, because about a year ago, we interviewed um, some women who had run for school boards and who had some affiliation with the group Moms for Liberty. Who are they and how are they seen now? Moms for Liberty started in protesting COVID restrictions in public schools. That had a lot of support. After COVID ended, they branched out into supposed indoctrination of children in public schools, looking at critical race theory or teaching about America's ugly racial history. And we should say it started in Florida, and now it's in a, a national group. Um, and this group that only started in 2021, it now allegedly has more than 115,000 members, 285 chapters across 45 states. Um, and at one point, I think more than 250 of them had run and won a seat on their local school boards. What do we know about their tenure, so to speak? Like, how have they used their power so far? Well, they've been extremely effective in Florida. Um, they lobbied the state legislature successfully to get a law passed um, that allowed them to read from materials in books at public school board meetings. And if the school board found those excerpts offensive, the books could be immediately pulled from school library shelves. I want to talk about counter-movements and possibly backlash, because we just had this election, and there were actually plenty of school board races around the country, and there were Moms for Liberty candidates who were on the ballot, I think, in Pennsylvania— in Iowa, uh, in Virginia, in North Carolina, in Minnesota, um, and a lot of them lost. Is that something you would see coming based on your reporting the last couple of months? Yes. Uh, the first Bombs for Liberty story I did was in March of this year, and there were a few people who came out to oppose them, and their opposition was mostly, they felt like, queer people were being um, denigrated by Moms for Liberty. In Florida in September, there was a much bigger crowd of people who came out to oppose them from all walks of life. So we're not just talking about college-educated liberals. There are, like, working-class people there, people who are in interracial families who felt like their children were under attack. They didn't like the tactics. They didn't like some of the books that they were going after. One of the most famous books that uh, is— Subject to Moms for Liberty's disapproval is called Gender Queer. It's a graphic novel. There is some graphic sex scenes depicted. But once Moms for Liberty starts going after The Bluest Eye, Slaughterhouse Five, people are like, okay, that's real literature. That those are classics that I read as a kid. Like I I can't stand for this. You've done some reporting on sort of how this activism actually played out. It's very, very aggressive. Maybe in the abstract. People will listen to uh, attacks on public schools. But if you're talking about their actual teachers, like they know that their teachers are not trying to groom children to be sexually abused. Which is a very frequent slur, calling very people frequent. groomers, like any anybody that they're upset with <laughs> in a way, but specifically people who are educators. Yes. For a while, it made people afraid to oppose them because what's worse than being called a pedophile? Like there's really nothing worse. 
But, I mean, you can see by the results at, in the election in Iowa, in the Des Moines and Cedar Rapids area, 92% of Moms for Liberty candidates lost. I mean, Iowa is not, like, considered the bleeding edge of, you know, social liberalism. Most people I spoke to who opposed them thought they were just going way too far. I have one more question which might not make the cut, but I want to ask it because it's my show. Yeah. When I did this interview of these Moms for Liberty candidates, um, people didn't like it. (laughs) You know, they, like, hated that I had talked to them. And my take was that, like, but they're they're in charge here. Like, there's—these people have made this real run at this important kind of civic— lever, the school board, and they now had control of the lever. And I kind of wanted to know who they were. And I think people took offense to the idea that I was treating them as they were normal. You're someone who, as you said, you kind of are in communities that get involved in fringe politics. How do you deal with that criticism? Now, that's something I have a lot of thoughts on. (laughs) Um, So... After the big uh, white supremacist rallies in the early Trump administration, there's this idea that came from anti-fascists of deplatforming, which is you're never supposed to let these people speak in media so they can't spread their ideas. Yes, I hear it a lot. It's like you shouldn't even talk to this person. You shouldn't interview this person, especially if you have a big um, mainstream media perch, because you would be essentially just helping to disseminate their ideas. Right. And deep platforming doesn't work. They have developed their own media channels, and they're able to spread their ideas without any challenge from mainstream media like us. Like, there are millions of people who listen to Steve Bannon's podcast. There's a whole constellation of media out there um, that is separate from the mainstream media. Um, And it's robust and well-listened to. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump is leading the Republican primary polls by 40, 50 points. And, like, he was deplatformed all over the place. I mean, it just doesn't work. It it works much better to, one, get down exactly what they believe. I mean, this is my personal belief. I know that people disagree with me, but I think it is very important to make people explicitly state their beliefs. And then, two, to show them being challenged. So you experience this as well, because I felt like I've been very defensive about this episode, whereas I thought, like, oh, don't you want to know what they think? Uh, So, yeah, I appreciate you. You close your eyes, the monster doesn't go away. That's just reality. We're all grownups here, okay? You, You want to deal with reality, you have to understand what it is. CNN correspondent Ellie Reeve. She's done some outstanding reporting on Moms for Liberty and book bans. And you can click on a link to some of her work in our show notes. And that's it for this episode of The Assignment, which was inspired in part by calls and messages from listeners like you. You heard one of those at the top of the show. Thank you to Michelle. You can do the same at the number 202-854-8802. Also, I want to thank some teen activists who spoke to us for this story, including Ella Scott in Austin, Texas, and Julia Garnett in Hendersonville, Tennessee. We appreciate you. 
The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Carla Javier. Our producers are Dan Bloom, Lori Gallaretta, and Jennifer Lai. Our associate producer is Isoke Samuel. The senior producer of our show is Matt Martinez. Mixing and sound design by Michael Hammond. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Lichtai. Special thanks to Katie Hinman. And of course, thank you for listening. I'm Audie Cornish. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.